0: right good day for lots of celebration still more to come if you have your bibles with you open up to romans 14 if you don't have your bibles it'll be up on the screens behind me but i want to encourage you that uh, to get in the habit of bringing your bibles with you and not just relying on the screen up here Uh, i saw a video of a preacher who was throwing scriptures up on the screen, and he had actually uh, changed it in order to fit the point that he was trying to make instead of getting his point to fit the scripture. And so uh, I always want to encourage you to check whatever I'm saying with God's word. And uh, so bring your Bibles. It's, it's a good habit to get into All right, Romans chapter 14, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we're going to start in verse 7. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord today. Paul says, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and give thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Let's pray. God, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would send it down right now to give us understanding that is so beyond our own human ability. God, without your Spirit guiding us and revealing truth to us, none of these words would make sense at all. God, we want to know you more. Jesus, we want to see you for who you are and understand what you have done. And so we ask for supernatural ability and the power and the grace to be able to do that, that you might be glorified in the way that we live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so in chapter 14, Paul is basically taking everything that he laid out in the first 11 chapters and showing us how all of that truth is used or can be used to keep us united in spite of all of our differences. And what he's saying here is is a huge issue not just for the church overall as a whole but for individual church congregations, I would say especially. I mean disputes over differing opinions and convictions over petty issues have led to the downfall of many a church. And we saw some of the silliness of that in some examples last week. Church unity is a very fragile thing. And there aren't really very many churches that do experience true unity. And if they do happen to achieve it, it seems like it doesn't last for very long because one of Satan's best skills is being able to get amongst a group of people and bring some petty issue up that he knows is going to cause division. And a lot of times he is very successful at that. But when you do experience unity among a group of individuals who are so different, it is a very powerful thing. And it's one of the biggest ways that Christ is glorified. It's one of the uh, most obvious um, signs of his reality and his presence on earth. And it is very important, something that God takes very seriously, because just as we saw with, uh, with, uh, with Eric being baptized a while ago, I mean, it can be a matter of life and death for someone. I mean, God used it here among us to, to lead him to, to, to Christ And it could very easily, and it often does, turn people away from Christ when they see how ugly we can be with one another. And if you think about it, you can easily see why unity really is so elusive and and so fragile. And you can also see how it really does take something supernatural in order to achieve it and maintain it. And let's just look at this church, for example. We have just under a 1,000 official bona fide members of Evangelistic Temple. We have, on average, of about 450, sometimes 500 people that come every Sunday morning. And so let's just take the number 500 for this example. That's 500 different individuals, 500 people from different backgrounds, different races, different tastes and personalities, different convictions, about certain issues. We have people from rough childhoods and people who grew up with great childhoods, which is going to cause differences among them. We have people who are carrying around a a whole lot of hurt in their heart, people who are carrying around lots of baggage from their past. We have those who are extremely private, and we have people who have no problem at all airing out their dirty laundry to anyone who will listen We have introverts, and we have extroverts. We have obsessive-compulsive people and those who have got to have things planned and in order with everything, and then we have those that are just completely scatterbrained. We have people who are very goal-oriented, and we have people who have no direction at all. We have Republicans, and we even have some Democrats. So... We, are, we have lots of differences. And added to all that is the fact that we are a non-denominational church, which means that we have people with backgrounds from every end of the denominational spectrum. Baptists and Pentecostals, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Church of Christ, and we even have some born-again Jews. And so you take all of those differences coupled with our bent towards narcissism and pride, and it makes for a potentially very volatile environment. It's no wonder then why so many churches experience conflict and division. And, I mean, looking at all that, it would seem absurd to expect that there wouldn't be any, that there wouldn't be any unity. Or the, the absurd to think that there wouldn't be any division and conflict because when you get all that together, it's it, it's very possible. And so you can see then that it's obvious that in order for unity to happen, it would take something supernatural to bring it about. And this is why Jesus, out of all the things that he could have said, is the one identifying mark of a Christian he said, it's your love for one another that will let the world know that you are my disciples. He didn't say it was anything else. He said it was that one thing, the way that you love one another. By that, all men will know that you are my disciples. And it is also why in the last few moments that Jesus had before he was led off to his execution, his dying request to the Father was, let them be one as you and I Are one. For unity to exist among people who are so incredibly different and so bent towards selfishness, it can only be God. There would be no other way to explain it, which is how He is glorified by it. In Romans 14, Paul's focus is on how to achieve that unity and to keep it from being broken. And like last week, Paul used huge. Theological truths to minimize little church squabbles. The issue last week we saw in verse 2 was about whether or not it was sinful to eat meat. And really, what he's talking about is meat that had been served to pagan idols and whether or not Christians should eat that. So, there are basically tensions in the church in Rome between vegetarians and meat eaters. Now, obviously, that is not a very big deal to be fighting over. That seems like it would be a pretty petty issue, but even though it may not be a big deal itself, such things had, have led to very bitter feelings and breakdown in relationships and split churches and a terrible reputation for the name of Christ. By itself, that issue is pretty small, but what it can become without the right framework and without the right thinking can be absolutely terrible. And so Paul uses huge theological truth to give that right framework for these things. And we saw last week how he puts the issue within the framework of the gospel. And doing that made these issues seem very small and insignificant. Not as big of a deal as they were making them out to be. And so that's basically what this whole chapter is about. The three big truths that Paul reminded them of last week was that, number one, they're accepted by God, that God's going to be their judge, and that he will make them stand in the end. Those three truths gave the right framework for handling these differences over little things that can do big damage to unity. And today, in this text, in verses 5 through 9, he does the same thing again. He points out minor differences that are going on and then puts them in this massive context Of life and death and you get the idea that Paul's solution to being ruined by small things is to get the big things front and center and that right there is the first point if you're following along in the notes to keep from being ruined by small things we need to keep focused on the big things Now, in order for that to really work, we've all got to be on the same page about what the big things are. Because some people are going to say, well, these are big things, when in reality they're not. And it's really pretty simple. The three things listed next. The big things are who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. If the issue at hand doesn't have anything to do with those three things, it is not an issue that we should be fighting over and allowing to cause division among us. When smaller things are put within the framework of those three big things, we can better see just how small and petty those things really are. Look at verse 5 again. He says, One person regards one day above another, Another regards every day alike. And so now Paul brings up another issue that they are fighting over in the Roman church. Disagreements about how to think and what to do about certain days. And this is an issue that still causes division among Christians today. I've known people, and I'm sure you do too, and there may be some of you here, who reject the traditional celebration of, Christian, of Christmas and Easter because of its association with pagan holidays i mean they can be pretty dogmatic about it about not not observing those days the way that everyone else does in the commercialization of the whole thing and they can also be pretty judgmental about those who do some of us don't celebrate halloween because of the evil that it represents But then there are many Christians in the church who don't see anything wrong at all with dressing up and going out and trick-or-treating. But there have been bitter fights and hurt feelings and broken relationships over these things. And so this issue that Paul brings out in verse 5 is just as relevant to us today as it was 2,000 years ago in Rome. The other issue he brings up in this text is still the same one that carries over from last week, the issue of... Whether or not to eat certain foods. And so here we have two disagreements among Christians. What to do about certain days and what to do about certain foods. And what is Paul's counsel for this? In the text last week, his counsel was don't despise one another. Don't judge one another. God has accepted your brother regardless of what he believes about these issues. So you should accepting too. God's going to make him stand in the end regardless of what he believes about this don't you try to make him fall over this but here in these verses Paul's counsel is different and it's actually pretty surprising in the last part of verse five he says each person should be fully convinced in his own mind now to me this would seem to make the problem worse not better and he doesn't try to get them to change their belief about these issues. He actually encourages them to m- remain resolute in what they believe. And this sounds crazy. I mean, here you have two groups in a church strongly disagreeing about something. And the feelings are so strong that it's causing some of them to do things that are destructive to true fellowship and unity. And so Paul, Paul comes along and instead of saying, lighten up, these things are minor and they don't deserve such strong convictions, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What? I mean, it seems like Paul's trying to put out a fire with a bucket of gasoline. Saying, okay, all you squabblers over petty issues, let's all get a firm conviction about this. No fence-sitters. No being wishy-washy about it. Come to a clear conviction. And so we have to conclude that from what Paul says, the way for disagreeing Christians to get along with one another in Christ-exalting ways is not to be wavering and indecisive in what they believe. I mean, that might create a kind of peace. You know, people that don't have any opinions on anything tend to get along pretty well. But apparently, Paul doesn't believe that the solution to division is to everyone just to become wishy-washy, even about minor issues. He wants them to be fully convinced about what they believe. Why? Why? Because doing that is what's going to require us to put our flesh to death. And submit to the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can be glorified. explain to you what I mean here. The same principle Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5 when he tells us to love our enemies. And in verse 46 and 47 he said this. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus gets more glory from us loving our enemies than he does from us loving those who love us. The death of our flesh isn't required at all for us to love our friends. There's no supernatural power needed there to be able to do that. But in order to love our enemies, now that takes something well beyond ourselves. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. That's something that only Christ can do. And then this same principle is also illustrated in Mark chapter 12, with the story of the widow's might." Starting in verse 40, 41, it says, "And he sat down opposite the treasury, and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. It didn't require any humility at all, any sacrifice for people to give out of their abundance. Nothing supernatural is needed at all for us to give what we know we can afford. But it does require that to be able to give joyfully more than what we think we can afford. God gets more glory out of that than he does out of comfortable giving. following me? I know it hurts, but go ahead and it's okay to not. <laughs> yes, he does get more glory out of that. Both of these illustrations have everything to do with why Paul says to keep strong convictions about what you believe over these issues. You see, God doesn't get much glory if we only got along with those that we agreed with on everything. But for us to love one another and remain unified, even with those whom we disagree with about things... And that God gets a lot of glory out of that Because in order for that to happen on a consistent basis It requires something supernatural It's something that only God can do We have to die to our flesh and our pride and submit to the Holy Spirit The next point in your notes, and this is big God gets no glory from us proving we are right He gets all the glory when we lay down our rights for the sake of unity. No supernatural ability is required to love your friends, to give only what you can afford, or to lay down a belief or a conviction that you don't feel very strong about. Supernatural ability is definitely required in order to love your enemies, to give more than you think you can afford, and to lay down the convictions that you feel very strongly about for the sake of the unity of the body. Now, notice what else Paul says here in verse 6. It says, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. But he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. He tells both sides that God can be glorified in what the other one is doing. He can be glorified in meat eating if it's done with the right attitude. And he can be glorified in abstaining from eating meat if it's done with the right attitude. He can be glorified in observing one day is more important than another. And he can be glorified in treating all days as if they were the same If it's done with the right attitude, it all depends on the heart of the person. Now, to those who have strong convictions about these issues, that's going to be very hard for them to believe. I mean, if you feel strongly that not eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols is going to give God more glory than eating it will, it's going to be hard for you to believe that those who are eating that meat can give him just as much glory. I mean, how can God be glorified in two things that are exact opposite of one another? Well, Paul answers that very question next, verse 7 and 8. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In order to get us to see... That God can be glorified in such opposite things as eating and not eating, he brings up life and death. Why? Because life and death are the exact opposites of eating and not eating. If you are alive, you have a body that can enjoy the pleasures of life food, drink, affection. But if you are dead, your body is in the grave and you can't do those things. So Paul reaches for the ultimate life and death and he says that both not just one of them can are experienced by believers to the Lord's for God's glory. And the point is that life and death as Opposite as they are can both display the worth of Christ. He can get glory. If, he can, if, if both of those things, as opposite as they are, can display his glory, then surely he's going to be able to get glory from the little differences that you are fussing over. And he will. <clears throat> all right, now watch this. We're all about to bring this to a big crescendo here. And then we're going to bring it home going to hit personally. Just like last week, Paul puts all this within the right framework, and he gets the big things front and center in verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. When someone asks, how can a person who is alive with a body And able to enjoy all of God's creation and give thanks to him for that. How can they give just as much glory to God as someone who is dead and their body is in the grave with no ability to eat, drink, taste, feel, see, or anything? How can these two radically different relationships to the world both display the infinite worth of Christ? And Paul answers, Christ died and rose again to make both the living and the dead his own possession. Therefore, the living live to his glory, and the dead in Christ also live to his glory. The living display his worth by how they use his creation for his glory. The dead display his worth by how they rejoice in his goodness that transcends and goes far above and beyond his creation. Now we're going to bring it in close. This right here, everything I just said and pointed out, is the hope that we have in Christ. And I'm not talking about just a hope that we have eternal life when we die. I'm talking about hope in the middle of situations that seem completely devoid of any hope at all. Because of what Jesus has done, the most hopeless of situations, there's hope. Explain why. You know, believing in the absolute sovereignty of God is one of the most comforting and reassuring feelings that I believe a human being can experience this side of heaven. If you believe that God is in control and that nothing happens without first being sifted through his hands and that he works all things For your good and his glory. If you really believe that. It can have an absolutely tremendous impact on your life. It removes fear and anxiety. And frees you up to live the life that you were created and saved for. Believing in this sovereignty requires trust. It's trusting that there's a whole lot more to any situation in front of me. A whole lot more than what I can just see with my natural eyes it's trusting that i'm only capable of seeing maybe just one small picture one small pixel of a magnificent picture that god is putting together even though that one pixel i'm looking at looks pretty ugly i've got to be able to trust that it is needed in order to make the big picture more beautiful And there are times in everyone's life where we will be faced with a test of whether or not we really believe that. Whether or not we really trust God and believe that he is sovereign and that he is good at the same time. See, that's where people have a hard time believing that he can be sovereign and that he can be good at the same time. We will encounter something so scary and so horrific that it is impossible for us to see how in the world God could possibly get any good from this. How in the world could a good God get glory from something as horrible as what is in front of me right now? I mean, the death of a child? Good grief. can't even imagine. I mean, how could a loving and good God possibly work out my good in something like that? How could he get glory from something like that? The news from a doctor that you've been praying that you wouldn't hear. The discovery that infidelity has been going on in your home. Are you kidding me? You're going to sit there and tell me that somehow God could use that for my good and his glory? We face these things that, from our small, limited perspective, we can't see any hope in at all. Now, the good things that happen, oh yeah, we can easily see how God gets glorified in that. A marriage that was on the verge of falling apart, but it's been restored, yeah, easy. God's glorified in that. The removal of a cancerous tumor a miraculous healing, yeah, God's glorified in that easily. Someone being saved just at the right moment from a near-death experience, yes, God gets glory from that. And we praise Him and we worship Him when those things happen and we give Him the glory that He deserves. But with the limited vision of our natural eyes, it is impossible for us to see how any glory and any good at all can come From the exact opposite of those things. We may not be able to see it. But God has said enough and given us enough in his word that we can believe it and trust it. And he led Paul right here to write about the two most extreme opposites that we will ever experience in this world. Life and death. And for this end, for this reason, Christ died and he rose again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Death is the ultimate end to us in this world. And it's over. It's hopeless. Lord, there's a stench. It's been four days. Come on. For those who are in Christ, he says, no, it's not. You see, I conquered death. And death is now subject to me. It belongs to me. And because of that, not even death can keep me from accomplishing my purposes. If it could, then it would not be true that I overcame it and conquered it. But it's mine. And so if he can be glorified, not just in life, but in the most hopeless situation of death, don't you think that he can get glory from everything that happens between life and death? You bet he can. Last point. Because Jesus triumphs over life and death, he can also triumph over everything in between. Jesus conquered life and death. Life, death, and the grave. He conquered it. And I think that is a phrase that has just become a cliche in the church. We throw it around so much, we've completely lost its meaning and how big of a deal that that really is. But do you realize how big it is? Because if he can do that, I mean, everything else is nothing for him. It's easy. And so the situations that are facing you that they are thinking, oh, there's no way God. He conquered death in the grave. What do you mean there's no way God? And if you really believe that, if you really believe that he can, and that he does work all things for your good and his glory, that brings about what Philippians 4-7 calls the peace that surpasses all comprehension, which means this peace comes over us in the middle of situations that it doesn't make any sense at all for there to be peace there. (laughs) And then if he can get glory and all that, Surely He can get glory from the petty little things that we disagree over and even have such strong convictions about. So instead of pounding our chest to prove that our convictions are right, how about we lay them down for the sake of unity and allow Jesus to get the glory that He deserves. And instead of looking at that situation that's sitting in front of you with fear, anxiety, and maybe even some anger and bitterness towards God. Because that's the thing. That's where people have a problem. If God is sovereign and he doesn't allow anything to happen without first being sifted through his hand, then for this to happen means he is not good. They have a trouble reconciling his sovereignty with his goodness well you don't believe that he can get be glorified in every situation then but he's good he's good and he just asked you to trust him and if you can it'll completely change your life let's pray God, you are so good. Even in the things that we think there is no ounce of goodness around us at all. God, it is so comforting to know that you control all things. God, I pray for those right now that may be struggling with that because of an issue that they're going through right now. Lord, where they're feeling hopelessness and despair, and depression and fear. God, I pray that you would replace that with hope. Lord, in those things that we look at and think it's over, it's done. There's no chance. Pray that you would let them see now that if you can overcome death, you can overcome anything. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church body that is unified, even with all of our strong disagreements over little things. Lord, I pray that we would be a church body that keeps the big things front and center. If we do that, there's no way the little things can destroy us. So Jesus, help us to constantly keep our eyes on you. And Lord, I thank you that you knew this message was going to be preached this morning. And you knew those who were going to be here this morning. And you know that there are some that are facing these issues. Holy Spirit, I pray that you administer to them in ways right now that just blows them away. Lord, reveal yourself to them especially. Lord, let your love and your grace just flow among us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.